You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. How are we? Are we feeling okay? Are we feeling a little hopeful? It's funny, though we're all separated and apart, I feel closer to you than I did when we were outside and could see one another in a way, because we're all going through the same thing together. That never happens. Through this, we've been grinding our teeth through the dread, and that's not even including the pandemic, which has forced us all to sort of assume the same life of staying at home, or mostly staying at home, and not seeing friends, and not traveling and not hugging and not all the rituals that we have abandoned, whether it's high school prom or opening day of baseball. I mean, we are fortunate. Many of us already work from home or could work from home. And some of us could survive without full-time work during this period. But the biggest challenge, I think, is what we will be like afterwards. And I'm not saying I know. I really don't know. Reinvention is probably what will happen as things that we were used to, like going to stores and restaurants and theater, are going to have to be reinvented too. I think rebooting, realigning, sort of understanding what we're good at, what we can live without. This is all part of what maybe 2021 or 2022 will be, depending on when the vaccine comes and when COVID-19 will look more like a, a past terrible memory and not a present danger. And then we're witnessing historic bad behavior, not just by the president, but by Lindsey Graham, by enablers who, do they not know what they're doing is against the law or unethical? It just boggles the mind, doesn't it? Because of that, I wanted to find out about transitions. We're still waiting for this transition. And we understand that the chief of staff is a very important figure in the White House. It was the first position announced for the incoming President Biden, by the way, that felt really good to say. And that man will be Ron Klain, who was his chief of staff when he was vice president. So my guest this week is Christopher Whipple, who has written The Gatekeepers, How the White House Chiefs of Staff Define Every President. More recently, he's written The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future. Chris Whipple is a documentarian, a former 60 Minutes producer, and it's great to have him here today. But first, friends, my five things that made life better this week. Numero uno, the Queen's Gambit. Yes, everybody's talking about it. You may not think it's as good as you've heard because now the hype is big. But once again, I took a tip from my friend, Fred Bernstein, whose taste is just perfect for me. And I loved it. Now, it's about a female chess prodigy. There is a lot of chess in the series. It's only one season. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you don't understand it. The directors have made this kind of a thrilling show and include the culture of chess as a spectator sport in Europe. So that was great. And I love the acting. And most of all, the set and costume design were incredible. It's worth it just for that. I think she may become the star of the show, may become a fashion influencer. What an ambition. Number two, 
Christopher Krebs, the former Microsoft executive who became Trump's cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, a division of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. He's the guy who was hired to make sure the elections would be honorable and clean and good and secure. He did. He did do that. We were told now that this election was the most secure of all times. And when Trump wanted him to go along with the charade of the rigged election, he refused and he was fired, of course. And he's shown more spine than most people these days in that administration. By the way, good for him. But why did he take a job in the Trump White House? You know, how how could that help? We've seen it's just well, anyway. Number three, a woman I probably will never meet called Kim, who works for Wild Cornell Imaging, who did me a great favor when I called to make an appointment. I was supposed to go every December. And when I called, I got an appointment for April 29th, 2021. Nah, wasn't so happy, but I wasn't mean. I was nice about it. I asked her to put me on a list of cancellations and she called me. And I got one. But more than that, there was a kindness to her. Anyway, if anybody from Wild Cornell is listening, Kim in the imaging scheduling department is lovely. Number four, I'm able to look forward to Stissel season three. Now, if you're a longtime listener of this show, you know that I love the show Stissel on Netflix. I know it's hard to say. I know it sounds like a lot. My exhibits won't watch it. It's just such a fine drama, comedy, a series about a family in Jerusalem. I can't make it sound good. I can tell you the acting, the writing is superb. And it became such a sensation in the last few years. It hasn't been filmed since 2013 that everyone came back to make a season three, which drops on December 20th. I'm so excited. I'm also looking forward to watching The Crown seasons three and four. I'm saving them for social isolation. And number five, the election wasn't rigged. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will start taking care of us on January 20th. Coming up is Chris Whipple, who knows a thing or two about the people who make decisions in Washington. Don't go away. It's Lisa Birnbach, and with all the chaos of the White House and all the firings and all the God knows what is going on there, he's certainly sending tweets of rage all day. What could be done? What could have ever been done with Donald Trump? We thought that his chief of staffs would, or staff singular, would help translate him to the world and the world to him. But Maybe it could have gone better. My guest is Chris Whipple, and he wrote a wonderful book called Gatekeepers, which I mentioned earlier. And Chris, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks. So since Joe Biden was elected, 
allegedly, we have heard that he has appointed his chief of staff. That's the first position we've heard about. A man called Ron Klain, who by all I've read seems to be the perfect guy. He was his chief of staff as vice president. Why is this job so important? I just found out that it only started in the 20th century. Yeah, it's a modern invention. and But it's absolutely true that every president learns often the hard way, with the possible exception of Donald Trump, every president learns that you cannot govern effectively without empowering a chief of staff as first among equals in the White House to execute your agenda and most importantly, tell you what you don't want to hear. Without a chief of staff who can do those things, it's almost impossible to govern effectively in the modern era. And for proof, all you need to do is look at Donald Trump's record over the last Mm -hmm. four years. He has failed to empower a chief of staff for reasons that are probably pretty obvious to everyone by now, because he's not interested in governing. He's interested in being Donald Trump. So it's a really important first step for Joe Biden. and, And I think he's made a great choice on paper with Ron Klein. When you talk about the chief of staff, it seems like this person has to be an insider, has to know how to work the houses of Congress and the Department of Justice and the Office of the Budget and so on. They have to sort of know stuff, right? Be the ultimate insider. And that's just the beginning. So yes, that's certainly true. He or she, and someday there will be a she, presumably, but he or she has to know Congress, the corridors of Capitol Hill, has to know how the White House functions. But beyond that, the White House chief of staff has to be someone who has the confidence to walk into the Oval Office, close the door and tell the president hard truths. So the gold standard at that, in my opinion, were James A. Baker III and mm-hmm. and Leon Panetta. Mm-hmm. Those guys had something in common. They didn't need the job. They had been around the block. They were comfortable in their own skin and were grounded. And that's a really important quality for a White House chief. Is it fair to say that, well, you said first among equals, but that the choice of the chief of staff actually shows America some kind of direction that the administration is poised to go on? Well, not necessarily the direction ideologically or in terms of policy or or, or what a president is, is trying to achieve, but the choice will absolutely tell you whether that president will be effective or not. Well, it's interesting because as I looked over the list of some of our past chiefs of staff, I remember the scandals or the difficulty that Congress had working with them or the president did. Everyone from, oh, Hamilton Jordan. I mean, when Jimmy Carter was president, Hamilton Jordan was a problem at one point because of things he said when he was inebriated. Yeah, so it's a great example. If you think about Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter was arguably the most intelligent president of the 20th century, was trained as a nuclear scientist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ronald Reagan, not so much, right? right? He's famously called an amiable dunce by Clark Clifford, which was unfair to Reagan, but nevertheless, a real contrast. But Reagan understood something that Jimmy Carter never really grasped. And that is that you have to have somebody empowered to execute your agenda. Jimmy Carter thought he was so smart he could run the White House by himself. And he, Hamilton Jordan was put into the position of being chief of staff, although he never had the title. Carter didn't believe he needed a quote unquote chief. Hmm. And 
Ham Jordan was a brilliant political strategist and a disaster as chief of staff. He was disorganized. He didn't want the job. He wore famously wore cowboy boots and uh, put them up on the desk and refused to return anybody's phone calls, including Tip O'Neill's. And when decisions had to be made, literally went and hid. He would go, go to someone else's wow. office, as you suggested. He was a pretty undisciplined, uh, dissolute character as well. So he was a disaster. And it was only three years into his presidency that Jimmy Carter realized his mistake, appointed uh, Jack Watson uh, who was a brilliant, organized, former Marine, smooth as silk, knew how to return phone calls and get things done. It, alas, it was too late for Jimmy Carter. Well, what is the attribute that's most important in a chief of staff? Well, I hinted at it before. I think that temperament is the most underrated and maybe most important quality in a White House chief of staff. So Jim Baker had it. Leon Panetta had it. Some others have had it as well. What it really means is being grounded and confident and comfortable telling the president what he doesn't want to hear. It's a quality that's been unfortunately uh, sorely lacking in uh, among Donald Trump's chiefs of staff, although you can't argue that it was really mission impossible for anyone at the last four years. Right. And this is a record, isn't it? Having four chiefs of staff in three and a half years? Certainly in one term, yeah. Barack Obama and Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton all had four White House chiefs of staff, but uh, they also were two-term presidents. Right. And it's a killer of a job. I guess you're on call 24 hours a day. If the first lady or a child of the president gets into a little trouble, they have to fix it. They're fixers, right? Besides giving the president bad news. Yeah, it's hard to describe just how relentless and exacting the job is and the various skill sets required because the White House chief is not only the the executor of the agenda, as I said before, he's also the famously the javelin catcher, which was Jack Watson's phrase <laughs> for it. Uh, uh-huh. You walk around, as Jim Baker put it, with a target on your front and on your back, uh, <laughs> to which Rahm Emanuel immediately said, and those aren't the only parts. Right. Uh, and you are also the honest broker of information. You're in charge of the staff secretary and the flow of information to the president goes through you. You are also in charge of making sure that every, and in fact, you're in charge of the communication staff. You have to make sure that everybody's on the same page on important issues in addition to everything else. So it's relentless. Every White House chief of staff, when he's appointed, makes a phone call to Jim Baker for advice. Uh-huh. And, the, and Baker tells every one of them the same thing. He picks up the phone and the first thing he says is, congratulations, you've got the worst blanking job in government. Wow. OK, so do you think Reince Priebus called him? I know when Reince he- Priebus called him, yeah. Oh, and, wow. And I, I know Reince pretty well by now. I did a new chapter for the paperback edition right. of The Gatekeepers in which uh, Reince poured his heart out, among other things, told me that take everything you've heard about Donald Trump and multiply it by 50. Oh, uh, man. So, yeah, Reince and uh, I think probably every other Trump White House chief called Jim Baker. And surely Jim Baker was right on the money with his description of their journey. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So it's impossible to manage Donald Trump. But who do you think of the four has been the best? 
Well, in fairness to Reince Priebus, let me say that he was not empowered by Donald Trump to do the job. And so it was virtually impossible for him. And I think Reince did his best. John Kelly, by contrast, had more authority. By the time he came in, Trump had been persuaded that he needed to give him at least some ability to organize the place, which Kelly attempted to do and and did with more success than than rights. But Kelly then ran afoul of not only of Trump, but of uh, the other powers that be in the White House and didn't last. And frankly, his successors, Mick Mulvaney and Mark Meadows, have really just been full-time enablers. You know, they uh, they might as well be valets. Uh, they, just, <laughs> oh, they just have been, they have failed miserably, in my view, abdicated almost all of their responsibilities. Well, it's just so weird that the job of president, as defined by Donald Trump and his flunkies, is to go on the road and and make friends, you know, be popular. It doesn't uh, seem like governing is is anywhere near the priority. No, conducting COVID super spreader events is a higher priority than, uh, than governing. The thing about Donald Trump is that it wasn't that he ran against government. He ran against the very idea of governing. And so that's been the difficulty for every Trump White House chief of staff, because he could care less about actually executing policy. He has no interest in that. He's only interested in empowering himself. And so that's difficult. I mean, I'll I'll give you one perfect metaphor for the Trump presidency. Uh, Dennis McDonough, the outgoing chief of staff for Barack Obama, told me that at noon on January 20th, 2017, he was sitting at his desk in the West Wing waiting for the incoming chief of staff, Reince Priebus, and his staff to arrive. And no one showed up. (laughs) Dennis, Dennis sat there. And he looked at his watch and a half hour went by and 45 minutes went by and an hour went by and he finally got up, turned off the lights and left. Wow. Yeah. Total disorganization. No respect for business as usual. No respect for the position. I mean, throughout his presidency, he hasn't even... He doesn't do anything. I guess he watches TV and he tweets. He's had one state dinner, I think, in the three and a half years of his presidency, maybe two. It's, well, one, it's thing, just- one thing that he used to be good at, I stress the word used to be, uh, or the words used to be, because um, it didn't work out so well this time around, but he had a certain genius as a campaigner in 2016, to be sure. He has a kind of feral cunning and ability to attract an immense following. And he obviously ran an historic campaign in 2016. The thing is that a a good White House chief of staff knows the difference between campaigning and governing. But Trump has never understood the difference. And none of his chiefs of staff have managed to to teach him. Right. I mean, it seems to me that often the chief of staff has been somebody who was very senior in a campaign. And It feels like, well, the president trusts this person and they've been through a lot together. But that, again, may not be enough to recommend somebody for that position. No, that's exactly right. And that's aforementioned Ham Jordan is the perfect example of a great campaign manager who just was completely unsuited to be chief of staff. Well, I also feel that everyone who came into the 
Trump administration who said, I'm going to help manage him. I know it's bad, but it might not be that bad. Everyone from Gary Cohn, the first treasury guy who left and... Well, all, of his, all of his national security advisors, Jim Mattis, right. H.R. Uh, McMaster, they all thought, well, we'll just explain the world to him. Right. Guess what? He wasn't interested in their right. lessons about the state of the world. He's he said to not read the daily briefing. He doesn't, as I understand it. Yeah. No. I, in fact, I wrote a piece um, in in the Spy Masters, my new book on the CIA directors. I have a, a whole chapter on Trump and his CIA directors, Mike Pompeo, and then Gina Haspel, and also an epilogue on what Trump knew and when he knew it about the coronavirus and what the intelligence mm-hmm. community told him. Mm-hmm. And I did a piece in the Washington Post about this as well, in which I said that the president is unbriefable. <laughs> Oh, my God, that's perfect. He does not read. He's incurious. He thinks he knows everything worth knowing. And he combines with all of that a contempt for the intelligence community because he believes that they are a deep state hell-bent on bringing him down. And therefore, he doesn't trust anything they tell him. It's a recipe for disaster. And we got it in the form of a coronavirus that has killed 250,000 Americans in part because the president ignored warnings in his PDB or President's Daily Brief throughout the months of January and February. Right. When we think of the CIA, we think of spies and undercover stuff. We don't think about the fact that they actually protect everyday Americans through intelligence. Yeah. So in the case of their sources, yeah, yeah. And in the case of the pandemic, of course, the principal agency would be the CDC, but the CIA and the NSA and the other intelligence agencies uh, have a supporting role in warning about pandemics. In 2019, in a paragraph that was almost unnoticed in the 2019 worldwide threat assessment, there was a paragraph warning about a dangerous coronavirus that could spread through the world unchecked and cause misery and economic collapse and death. That was in the 2019 Worldwide Threat Assessment. In 2020, February of 2020, there was no Worldwide Threat Assessment briefed to Congress. And if you think that's a coincidence, I've, I've got a, a bridge I'd love to yeah. tell you. Uh, yeah. Can you imagine what would no, have that's been shocking. the 2020 version of the WWTA? It didn't happen because Trump's intelligence chiefs were afraid to say in public anything that would anger him. At least that's that's the best story that we have for why that briefing never took place. That's just unbelievable. Yeah. And yet believable when you know the cast of characters. Yeah. And and as I say, I write all about it in the Spy Masters in the the epilogue. You know, when I was going to college in the late 70s, there was a real dislike (laughs) of spy agencies. There was a real dislike of ROTC on my campus. The CIA and other agencies were not allowed to recruit on my campus. And You must have gone to then, one of those lefty colleges. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's perfect. I did go to one of those lefty colleges. Me too, but it was also famous for recruiting CIA officers. So well, I, I, went, well, I went to I, Yale, I, so that's... I that's figured... Tough. Yeah, that was that was uh yeah, that was clear. So I uh I went to Brown. So we were neighbors but not not quite. Right. on the same page, but after 9/11, the interest 
among students all over the country, because I write a lot about college, was so keen to join the NSA, CIA, FBI, and State Department. It really is interesting to me why any young person right now who has paid attention to what's gone on in this country under Trump would be even interested in joining the government in any position. It's a pendulum that swings back and forth. And I went to college in the late 70s as well, when, you know, the CIA was not welcome whatsoever on campus. Uh, Neither was ROTC. Back in those days, Frank Church, the late Frank Church, the senator Mm. was was, was calling the CIA a rogue elephant that careened around the world, overthrowing governments and trying to assassinate world leaders. So there was some truth to that. But in reality, over the last 50 years, far from being a rogue elephant, when the CIA has gotten into trouble, it's been almost always at the behest of rogue presidents, uh-huh. from Nixon to Trump. And as I say, it's it's become a pendulum. So to look at recent history, you're right about post 9-11, there was suddenly a surge of, of patriotism and people wanting to, uh, to work for the intelligence agencies. But after the scandal of WMDs, mm-hmm. there was a real profound shift. And that really caused tremendous damage, I think, to the reputation of the intelligence agencies. And they're still recovering from that. But having said that, I think the Donald Trump era has restored, to some extent, the luster of the so-called deep state, which has tried to push back against this rogue presidency. So, for example, the the anonymous CIA whistleblower is somebody I think probably a lot of people would aspire to be. Ah, interesting. The truth is that in recent years, the CIA, far from being a rogue elephant, has been pushing back against a rogue presidency. Interesting. So there's certainly a lot of voices that we see and hear, whether it's on Twitter or all the talking heads on TV. So that could be a signal to young people that, hey, this is cool. You get to go on TV. You can make a difference. Yeah, I mean, who would you rather be, uh, Mark Meadows or Jeremy Bash? Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. or uh, Stephen Miller or uh, John Brennan? I'd rather be anyone in the world but Steve Miller. <laughs> I, anyone. I had a feeling you might say that. Yeah, yeah. That's true. This president, for all his flaws, you can say this, he does listen to young people. It seems like Young people like Jared Kushner and Stephen Miller are the main, and this new guy who's firing everybody, the 30-year-old, they're the people who are helping to execute his quote-unquote vision. Well, I, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way. I, I hadn't thought of that this as being a generational thing. I think Donald Trump has plenty, all too many enablers who, of all ages, let's just put it that way. Yeah. And some from South Carolina. Yes, this, this is true. Chris, what does he have on Lindsey Graham? (laughs) What does he have on Lindsey Graham? I can't explain any better than you could why the Republican Party has become a cult of personality. You know, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine named David Kennerly, who was... Oh, the photographer. Yeah, who was Gerald Ford's White House photographer and won a Pulitzer back in the day, posted on Facebook today the cover of Time magazine he shot in Jonestown Mm. uh, 40 years ago or whatever it was today. And you look at that picture of all those dead bodies and the Kool-Aid. Right. And you can't help 
but think, I mean, it's, uh, forgive me, it's a little overwrought, this analogy, but you can't help thinking of this Republican Party. They have become really a, a party of zombies blindly following this president, even after his election defeat. And, and this, guess and what? They, non-transition he, transition. He was impeached also. Everybody seems to have forgotten already. Yeah. You know, I think one thing he does brilliantly is create chaos. There's just so many stories you can follow in a day. Exactly. The cult thing is interesting because... It seems that the zombies sort of know that this is crazy and wrong, but they do it anyway. Especially Lindsey Graham, who talked about what a crazy race-baiting xenophobe he was and then completely denied saying it. Yeah, that was that old definition of a gaffe when you accidentally tell the truth in Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, oh, that's funny. That was Lindsey's, actually, his truthful summation of uh, Donald Trump way back when, yeah. Yeah, way back when. The cult of Trump, I think, will decline. My opinion is he's going to be dealing with a lot of lawsuits and he's not going to be so powerful as he thinks he is. I mean, people think he's going to run for president. That's total crap. He won't. He can't. He's not a good president. I mean, do you think there's any way, shape or form he can do that? Or is he just telling Mike Pence to step away? I don't know. I I don't know what the future holds for Trump. I, I suspect that Joe Biden will try to take the Jerry Ford high road. I mean by that, Gerald Ford famously pardoned Pardon Richard Nixon. Nixon. Right. I'm not sure that Biden's going to pardon Donald Trump, but I think he'll avoid setting his Biden's Department of Justice loose to go after Trump. I think he'll try to stay away from that. I think he thinks it's divisive. It will harm his own ability to, to try to pull you know, unify the country. So I think that leaves Donald Trump to the state prosecutors like Cy Vance and Letitia James. But he has at least nine lives, if not many more. He's been very, very skillful at staying out of legal trouble up to now. Well, we shall see. We shall see. Okay, Chris, I know you came up with a list of the five things that make your life better. So let's go through that. Sure. Too much talking about Trump. You know, you need a palate cleanser. Although one of these five things has to do with Trump. Yes. Uh, Yes. Well, one of my... Not the first two. I mean, my first two are pretty... I'm sure you, all of your guests have have used these before. Family and friends would be my first two for maybe obvious reasons. Um, Right. Family one, friends two. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. First responders... Number you know, three. How could we, and especially the, the COVID-19 first responders, the healthcare workers who have kept us all alive. I can still remember that long winter where we would go to the windows at seven o'clock every night and applaud mm-hmm. them. And I still think of them every night at seven. I The deep state, we, we mentioned before. Number four. Oh, yes. I'm thankful to them because, you know, from Fiona Hill to Alexander Vindman to Chris Krebs, yes. the cybersecurity operation who was just fired today by Donald Trump or yesterday. Who knows? It's hard to keep track. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, what would we do without them? They're the reason that the country's, uh, you know, our safeguards have seemed to survive the Trump presidency. Do you feel that whistleblowers, by definition, are deep state? Well, I think that I use it ironically, of course, the term. Yes. Because right. it's uh, it's Trump's. It may, 
It may not exist. Yeah, it's Trump's term, and and he's not. By the way, as I write in my book, The Spy Masters, he. Trump is not the only one to have thought this. Richard Nixon was absolutely convinced that the CIA was a deep state full of liberal enemies, the Georgetown sect, he called them, who were hell-bent on taking him down. Nixon, Mm -hmm. Nixon was wrong. Trump is wrong. But Trump regards anyone who believes in constitutional norms as an enemy and a member of this deep state. So thank God they're there. Thank God they are there. You know, I felt terrible when they were all fired, especially Alexander Vindman. But I think his reputation is stellar and he should be able to find something. Yeah, I think that these people I just mentioned, Fiona Hill, Alexander Vindman, Chris Krebs and others, um, the anonymous CIA whistleblower, their profiles encourage. They are the modern version. Exactly. And number five, five. you're number five was my number four. You're kidding. Yeah, no. Uh, so the Crown. So I love the Crown. It's I'm just addicted to it, and it's partly I just find you know the royal family fascinating and amusing, but also the series just so well done. Uh, oh, and the acting is terrific, and the script as well. It's it's great. It really is a perfect escape. It a is. perfect escape. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris Whipple for being my guest. It's just good to to talk to somebody who knows more than I do about something that fascinates me. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Good. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Chris Whipple, author of the recently published The Spy Masters, How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future, and the New York Times bestseller, The Gatekeepers. You can follow Chris on Facebook at Chris Whipple or on Twitter at CC Whip. His website is chriswhipple.net. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos to all the things in this program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Kevin Watkins. My team is Espresso Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, please wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>